0: Father we want to live loved. We acknowledge that you are love. You don't just love but, but that's your very essence. Would you help us to experience that this morning? Would you help us to, to grasp experientially the reality that we're no longer slaves to fear but we are children of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we've been born again into a family. That we're your children. That we have a place we come from, a place we're going, a place that we belong. And we get to come together on Sunday mornings to be reminded of that. May my words, our words corporately reflect profoundly with energy and life and fullness, your heart for us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you weave your truth, to quote C.S. Lewis, behind the watchful dragons of our hearts, that, that anything that would hinder us, stop us, or distort the reality of who we are, would you weave your truth behind that, and come into our hearts through the back door if need be that we may experience you for your kingdom's sake we pray amen well, i want to go into a series what's been on my heart is is really honing in on the ways that that we move the love of god from our head and from ideas into our heart experientially so that that our identity in christ becomes our set point it doesn't just become something we get thrown back on when we hear an inspiring message or happen to read scripture or or break away for a few minutes for a quiet time, but to where really this unconditional love of God becomes the thing that we are bathed in, and it becomes our default out of which we operate. How many of you feel like you're there? Okay, good. So we might have some stuff we can do this morning. Now, the thing, the thing that's so tough for me, can I, can I just express a little, little frustration that I've realized actually, um, how many of you have heard Maybe, maybe in this scenario, you're expressing frustration to, to somebody that you just don't feel very loved. Like, you know all these truths, but you don't feel that profound sense of self-worth or, or love. It just doesn't make sense in your heart. And somewhere in the conversation, the response is, well, there's just this choice to believe. You have to just believe it, that it's true for you. How many of you have heard something along those lines at some point? That somehow, some way, there's just this switch in your mind that you can flip. This belief switch that's normally off. And if you could just flip the switch to go into belief mode, then all of a sudden, this thing would just drop, like, down from your head into your heart, right? And people are really well-meaning when they say that. And there's maybe even scriptural precedent for that kind of idea. But raise your hand if that's worked for you. That you just, you just flip the switch one time, and the next thing you know, you're walking in the abundance and the authority and the assurance of Jesus. Okay. If you raise your hand for that, trade me spots. Um, because I'm not there. But I want to be there. In a little bit, we're going to look at a story of Jesus in which when there's pressure mounting on him from all sides... He's somehow able to find the gaze of the Father, lock eyes with the Father, and push through with profound power, confidence, and security in the midst of the darkest time of his life. And I'm like, Jesus, you can do that then? I can't even do that when somebody cuts me off when I'm driving. I find this other creature coming out of me. And yet Jesus can do it in the most profound moment, literally sandwiched between betrayal from his closest friends and then faced with the deepest, darkest challenge of his life. And somehow he finds the eyes of the Father and moves forward through it. How many of you want that? I want that. But we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. I want to be really careful with what I do with this, but I can't avoid this. The reason that it's so hard, the reason there's no such thing as a belief switch, is because we grew up in families. Should I have said that a different way? <laughs> my family's going to be here uh, Mother's Day for a wedding, and I'm really having to think through, now, what do I do then <laughs> when, when my parents are sitting here, right? But The reality is that there's no belief switch because from childhood the way we interact with our closest caregivers, whoever they are, however they are, it literally wires our brains a certain way so that we are almost pre-formatted for whether it's anxiety or stress or isolation or negativity. There are these ways that God has wired us for relationship that is a beautiful, powerful thing but also it can turn on us and cause us to get in these ruts that we literally don't have the willpower to just believe our way out of. You know what I'm talking about. Over the next little bit we're going to talk about what psychologists and spiritual directors are finding about the way our brains are wired and how through community and relationship our brains can literally be rewired so that like Paul says in Romans 12 we can literally be transformed by the renewing of our mind how does that happen? What kind of environment do we need to be in? So that happens so that our brains literally can grab a hold of the love that God has for us. I wanted to start. Let me... Man. This is one of those mornings that I have so much to say and so little time. So I'm probably just going to let it rip. Last Sunday was more like, hey, let's talk. Let's dialogue. I think I need to just let it rip. I, when we were praying this morning with the worship team, Dan had this picture, what, what was the phrase you said? Like, um, Just like a loaded gun, just like let it, let it go kind of thing. That's actually really appropriate. Because for the first time in a long time, and I'm really sorry to do this to you, in my keynote, I'm using, wait for it, bullet points. I'm so sorry that it's come to this. But there are some things that need to be said, and they can only be expressed through bullet points. I'm going to have more bullet points this morning than my whole two years here <laughs> combined. Ride with me. We have two people that are like, yes, bullet points. <laughs> How do we embrace the love of the Father? How do we gauge the level to which we can actually walk out of and experience the love of the Father? It starts with what psychologists call this thing called attachment theory. Who's familiar on some level with, with the ideas behind attachment theory? Okay. Good. I hope I do it some justice. Attachment theory really starts with looking at the way that we experience and express love in relationship. And they have ways to kind of quantify this and talk about this. In attachment theory, the foundation for receiving and giving love is a secure attachment. That's the term they use, secure attachment. How many of us don't even really know what that would look like? To walk around through life with this deep abiding sense of security that you don't get rattled by rejection, by betrayal, by fear. When we're securely attached, we can give birth to these creative things that are going on inside of us because we don't care how people respond. How many of you have had an idea that you want to just put out there and it hasn't come out because you're like, well, what if they don't like it as much as I want them to like it?" When we embrace security and the love of the Father, it frees us up to give birth to these things that God wants to do in us. It frees us up to love without needing or demanding to be loved back. I'm not there yet, but I want to be. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a couple of the elements of what they call secure attachment. And then we're going to look at some of the ways that we deviate from that in our operating, Okay? You're going to have to hold all these bullets in your mind for a few minutes because as we go, we're going to overlay them into the story of Jesus and see in what ways did the Father provide a secure base for Jesus. How did Jesus literally live loved? So the first element of secure attachment is proximity. Now imagine a young kid playing at a playground. Nathan and I were at the playground yesterday. If you could... Imagine that we had him step in paint before he went to the playground. And then we let him loose to run around and play. What do you think we would notice about the patterns of his little painted footprints around the playground? What would it always loop back to at some point? Me. It would kind of be this like circling back around and then going back out. Because there needs to be this proximity and this safe zone. A secure attachment, the caregiver, the person, in our situation, God, provides a safe zone out of which we can go and explore the world. Now, think about it this way. As we talk about all these things, to whatever extent we experience the opposite, that's the extent to which, well, actually, let me qualify that. To whatever extent we experience the opposite, and then there was not somebody there for us to help us process through it and kind of, break through and and undo that damage that's the extent to which we operate out of insecurity in our relationships so proximity is an important piece this idea of a safe zone from which we explore where our feelings and opinions are validated we experience support encouragement affirmation resources and challenge Where there's instruction, development, it's not overprotective. Let's think for a minute about the opposite of these. What's the opposite of proximity? Distance. How many of us in our families experienced more distance, whether it was emotional, physical, than we did experience proximity? That's going to do something to the way our brains are wired. It's going to do something to the way that we connect with or don't connect with God. A safe zone. How many of you would not have, growing up, would not have considered your home a safe zone? The last thing it maybe felt was safe. Zach is raising his hand. That's perfect. That is so loaded right there. Because why? What did he say? (laughs) It's true. I gave him a bloody nose. I'm just going to go there. I was actually thinking about this the other day. So one of the things that we see in the life of Jesus that's so fascinating, with secure attachment, I'm sorry about the bloody nose, bud. Do you forgive me? Yeah. I can't believe you said that. Um, you're never staying in here again. Um, when there's secure attachment, what's interesting is we can actually be wounded. And this is what often what happens. We can be wounded by the person that we need the most. And yet, somehow, we will still turn back to the very one that wounded us for comfort. It's actually really beautiful when I give Zach a bloody nose and then he still turns to me and bleeds all over me and I get to be the one that holds him and comforts (laughs) him. Now, you're wondering how I gave him a bloody nose. What is I doing? Um, We were wrestling and I was holding him up by his feet, I think, and his hands. And then I might have pulled one of his hands out and he just went, just face planted into the floor. It was on Josh and Betsy's old carpet. And he's just like, "Uh, Dad, you just dropped me on my face, blood pouring out his face. But as he's crying, he turns to me to comfort him. So the opposite of proximity, obviously distance. Some of us only experience or primarily experience distance from our caregivers, emotionally or physically. Maybe they're great providers, but not there for us emotionally. That's going to affect the way we relate to God. The safe zone idea. We all need our homes to be the safe zone out of which we can go explore the world. Some of us didn't experience that. We're not necessarily going to be wired to relate to God as safe without some rewiring in community. Where our feelings and our opinions are validated. How many of you grew up in a family where it was, don't cry. Please don't do that. Don't be angry. Don't do this. Don't express emotion. And all of a sudden we begin to have this belief that emotion is bad, that feelings are bad, or that our opinions weren't valued. That literally wires our brain in a certain way. We need to experience support. The opposite of support is go figure it out on your own. How many of you had that kind of growing up, where your parents wanted to challenge you, but it was, all right, you go figure it out. You didn't experience the resources you needed. But the flip side of that as well is that we need to experience challenge. Some of us, and this is more kind of for parents of my generation, as in my age with my kids, is that we were so unsupported as children often that we under-challenge our kids these days. I know that none of you have ever seen any kids that just kind of, they rule the home and they never, never get challenged, never get told what to do, what's right and wrong. But literally, if we are not challenging our kids, and if we were not challenged, it disempowers us. It takes away our sense of power and ability to make a difference in the world. And so there's this balance of support and challenge that needs to be hit, okay? So these are some of the elements of secure attachment. Here's what often many of us experience. Now, we're gonna talk about it on two sides. We're gonna talk about it in terms of islands, and we're gonna talk about it in terms of waves, all right? I'm gonna give you all an assessment that you're gonna take. No, just think through it, but, so on one side, we're gonna talk about islands. The other side, waves, and and this is what I need to say. This isn't how we operate always. Is this sounding kind of familiar? Um, this isn't how we operate always. This is how we find ourselves functioning under pressure. When stress is high, when demand is high, when life is getting heavy on us, which never happens to any of us, right? I know that we just kind of coast. That's why we're called coastlines. Is because we just coast through life, because that's how we are. But So when the pressure is on, how do we respond in our relationships? Well, if you tend towards islanding, then here are some of the things you do. You have the sense that you need to be alone to calm down. Get me away from people. I need to be alone to calm down. If you're islanding, you will thrive on and need frequent alone time and can even become addicted to alone time. It's this mindset of I can take care of myself better than anyone else can take care of me. Anybody ever have that feeling? If you're an island, you probably won't admit it. No. Um, my wife is so islandy, aren't you? That's why she's laughing. Um, I'll get to pick on me in a minute when we talk about waves. But um, Often don't trust others to be there for them. Often if we grew up in a, in a family where there wasn't much proximity and wasn't that validation of feelings and our opinions, then we will learn to shut them down and shut them off even to ourselves. That's kind of how islands, if we island, will tend to function that way. Um, island people will be very low maintenance in a relationship. And they will be allergic to drama. Anybody allergic to drama? Sometimes my wife is allergic to me, because <laughs> I can be drama. When we're islandy, we're very independent and self-reliant. But we can also be productive and creative. And island people can be very um, logical, and consistent, very stable people. Now, can we just, for the sake of authenticity, and I'm just, you don't have to respond, but how many of you, before you see the other side, how many of you would say, I can relate to some of those islandy tendencies? You would say that that's kind of, OK, we've got a lot of islands in here. All right. And let me, let me clarify, this is not like, hey, you are an island. This is, these are ways that we can tend to operate based on how our brains are wired from growing up. OK, can I see those hands again? Just so that I know how to talk to you? Wow. Okay. All right. Now let's talk about the other side. The other side are waving. So we can island or we can wave. Now here's what waves will often do. Or here's what we'll do when we're waving. Waves will often have the sense of they're not sure where they stand in their important relationships. They're constantly needing reassurance. Are we okay? Are we okay? Are we okay? Waves need to be with others and need to verbally process to calm down. Now it's really interesting when you have an islandy person and a wavy person married, and there's some tension, which happens every once in a while, and the wave is like, "We just need to talk this through. Let's just process." And island's like, uh, "Where'd you go?" And the wave is waving like, "Get back here!" Because the wave needs that security, the assurance of the relationship around them to kind of settle down, to find their, their peace point again. And islands are like, peace. <laughs> waves, when we're waving, we're much better at taking care of others than we are of ourselves. You know what often happens with waves when they're going up? Was there is what we call the parent-child reversal. Often, if you have wave tendencies, it's because you were put in a position growing up where you had to be the caretaker for those who should have been your caretaker. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah, that's how we become wavy. Waves often don't feel worthy of love, but on the flip side, they can be generous and giving. They can be fun to be around, and they can be very empathetic because they've had to be to function within their family system. Now, how many of you would consider yourself more tending toward the wave side of things, needing more of that reassurance, kind of find yourself moving back and forth in relationships? Wow, we have very few waves in here. Interesting. <laughs> Some of our wavers are like, I'm not really sure. And <laughs> I'm, I'm not really going to let myself be locked in. And the reality is that we can move back and forth between both of these in different seasons of life. But one of the things that we need to be aware of is that both of these really, there's a foundation of insecurity that's there if we have these tendencies. And God wants to bring us to a place where there's this sense of assurance that we carry into our relationships and even with ourselves. See, when we're islandy, we believe that we have self-worth but we aren't sure that other people can come through for us, so we just kind of go off and do it on our own. How many of you have a lot of experience with that? Other people can't be there for me, so I will be there for me, and I'm not gonna let other people be there for me. On the wave side, it's the opposite problem. I'm not sure that I have the goods to take care of myself, so I'm gonna spend my life looking for someone stronger, wiser to rescue me and protect me from the dark, scary world. How many of you guys have spent a lot of time there? So waves have an issue with their own self-worth, but they believe others are trustworthy. When we island, we have an issue with the trustworthiness of others, but we believe that we're worthy of love. So is there a way that brings the best of these two together and walks in security? I don't know. So another option between anchoring and wave, or between waving and islanding is called anchoring. This is where. We can operate as anchors where there's this underlying sense of security in our attachments that we can begin to live love. Let's look for a minute about how anchors can function, how we function when we're anchoring. We're okay to be alone, but we prefer intimate relationships. There's a sense of emotional strength and resilience. We feel emotions deeply, but we don't let them steamroll us. How many of you guys would say that that would be a nice place to be in, right? Where you can feel emotions for the weight of them, but they don't steamroll you and knock you off course. When we're anchoring, we're willing to seek and accept comfort. We have courage for love and for intimacy. We're responsible for ourselves in a healthy way, not overly responsible, but we believe that we can make a difference in the world and in our lives. When we're anchoring, it's easy to move out of this victim mentality that everything is done to me and I don't have a choice. We've seen that a lot in people, haven't we? It's easy to become a victim. And when we're anchoring, we have courage in facing challenges in life. One of the problems with talking about this is it's easy to get kind of pushed into and and to really focus on our pathology, our dysfunction, or the things that we wish we could do better. How many of you guys know what that's like? You hear about something, you're like, oh, that's totally me. And another thing I need to fix about myself, thank you. Anybody done trying to fix things about yourself? (laughs) Or at least like a break from it? So that's not what we're trying to do this morning, is be like, all right, now here's a checklist. Okay, now start with this, and then fix this, and then fix this. That's my boy. Um, Fix this thing, fix this thing. That's not the point. I think the point is, looking at the reality, here's the thing. None of you are islands. None of you are waves. I'm not sure if we're anchors. But I can tell you in a few minutes what we are. And it's very, very important that we start to get it. But I was going to say something about that before we move forward. Um, Let's look at this passage in Luke chapter 22. This is how Jesus functioned in his relationship with his father. Now remember, this passage is sandwiched between Betrayal by Judas, Jesus knows that he's about to be betrayed by one of his closest and then he actually tells Peter, by the way, you're going to reject me as well. And so Jesus, after the Passover meal, he goes with his disciples, he takes three of his disciples up to the Mount of Olives, a place that Luke tells us that it was his custom, that he would go there almost every night after teaching. This was his kind of safe place to go connect with the Father. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Now remember, on the other side of this story is when Judas comes to the Mount of Olives to literally betray Jesus and have him arrested. So we have to remember that this is sandwiched in between. Betrayal, rejection, imprisonment, and his trial. So it says, Jesus left and made his way to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom, and the disciples followed him. When he arrived, he said to them, pray that you won't give in to temptation. Another word for that is trial, that you won't fall into the trial that's coming. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed. He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. Now let's pause there for a minute. Look at that line for a moment. Father, If it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. Does Jesus fully know what he's about to step into? Does Jesus have a sense that what he's about to move into, once these soldiers come to get him, that it's not going to be good, it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be comfortable? So I think what's easy for us to do is we read a passage like this, And we're like, oh, wow, this whole interaction must have taken like 45 seconds because that's how long it takes us to read it. Do you think that Jesus just kind of went up to the mountain and he's like, all right, disciples, you stare over there. And so the disciples hang out. Jesus goes over there and he kneels down or however he prays and and he's just like, all right, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away. However, not your will, but mine be done. And he gets up and then he's done? I'm guessing that this is hours of Jesus agonizing, pouring out his heart to the Father, and this is what I'd like us to picture for a minute. I want us to stop at this line, take this cup of suffering away from me. Before we read the line, however, I want us to imagine that there's some space there, that there was some time that elapsed. I love having those. I want us to imagine that there was some time that elapsed. Jesus is pouring out his heart to the Father. And I want you to take a minute, and I want you to imagine this scene. How is the Father responding to Jesus in this moment? Imagine that, if you will. You have Jesus about to face what he's about to face, and he says, Father, I don't want to do this. This is destroying me. I don't have what it takes. Take this cup of suffering away from me. Now how do you picture the Father responding? Remember that when we talked about secure attachment, we talked about proximity. We talked about a safe zone. We talked about feelings and opinions are validated, heard, listened to, and understood. We talked about how there is support. There are resources. There is encouragement and affirmation, yet there's also challenge. Do we see any of this at play? Isn't it so easy just to read this passage and picture this more just kind of like a quick interchange between Jesus and the Father? Like, oh yeah, Jesus just went and kind of like dumped some things on the Father and then, but we have to understand the emotional, I guess, environment that Jesus is sitting in here because that's how we tap into how the Father relates to us when we enter into that space. In the midst of all of this, and and often we we get to this point, and we'll even talk about how, we're not going to go fully into this, but it's important to be touched on. Jesus says from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we get this idea that the Father turned his face from Jesus. In John 16, verse 32, embedded into this very story, Jesus is telling his disciples, all of you are going to betray me. All of you will walk away from me. But the Father is still with me. One of the things that we're often not taught is that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the beginning of a psalm that Jesus would have quoted to fill that psalm in the minds of everybody that was hearing him. How many times when Jesus prayed, did he pray, my God? Every time Jesus prayed, he prayed, Abba, or Father. Not a single one of his prayers was, my God, my God. I don't believe that that cry from the cross was a prayer. Because if you go and read through the rest of Psalm 22, at some point I encourage you to do this. If you go and read the rest of Psalm 22, there's a line in it that says, he has not turned his face from his afflicted. Embedded in that very psalm. He has not turned his face from the afflicted. And then the end of the psalm is a psalm about the kingdom coming and the king establishing his reign on the earth. So that's a little bit of a side note, but it's a very, very huge one because we have to believe that when the Father said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that he meant that for Jesus as well. And this moment here, I picture Jesus pouring out his heart to the Father. And I think about a little kid when they're out kind of exploring, they're out doing their thing, they face a challenge, they feel unsettled, or they feel a threat, even if they're at a distance. What does the child do for reassurance? They look back and they try to what? Lock eyes with mom or dad, or whoever it is. And the response of mom or dad becomes the response of the kid. If we can lock eyes with mom or dad... And mom's not freaking out. Dad's not freaking out. Then I know I don't have to freak out. I believe that this is a moment where Jesus is looking to lock eyes with the Father. He's saying, this terrifies me. I don't like where this is going. Are we okay? Are you with me in this? Can we do this? And the Father sends an angel to strengthen him, to lift him up, to resource him, to walk with him. Yet the Father does not just totally imagine how hard this was for the Father imagine how hard this was for the father do you think at all the father was tempted to just say just let's just call this off i don't know but as a father i would be i would be like let's let's reevaluate this especially if my son is there pouring out his heart the father would be like let's let's take a step back and let's think this through But then they come to the conclusion again, together we can do this. But Jesus needed to lock eyes with the Father. He needed to sense that proximity, that physical touch, that encouragement, that support. He needed to come into that safe zone. I believe the Mount of Olives was a safe zone for Jesus that he would come back to connect with the Father to get his bearings so that he could walk forth in life with confidence and authority and healing. Anything else? that you guys notice about the response of Jesus. Well, let's, let's go to this real fast. Notice, this is huge, actually. Just a, a few more things. However, not my will but yours be done. Father, I trust you, even though everything inside of me is screaming, don't do this, don't go forward in this. I trust you. It's interesting when we start to talk about pain and suffering and moving forward into uncertainty. Did you know that most people, there's this experiment done with rats. They took these rats and they put them in this shock box. I, I think it's kind of messed up what they do to rats sometimes. But anyways, it's important for us to hear. They took these rats and they put them in this shock box. And these rats would just get accustomed, obviously, to getting this electric shock. They came a point when they would take the rats out and put them into a different scenario. And the rats had the option of going back into the box versus going into kind of uncharted territory, an area that they weren't sure of. The rats chose to go back to the shock box because it was familiar, because they would rather experience pain than they would experience uncertainty. Now, whatever that's worth, just think about that for a little bit. Are you ever in a point where you'd rather experience pain than uncertainty? Because on the journey to wholeness, there's a lot of uncertainty, isn't there? And sometimes pain feels very, very comfortable. It becomes a friend of ours. And we're like, no, I'll I'll stick with this, because I'm not sure what's out there beyond there. That's kind of a side note, but I think that's fascinating. Our brains are actually wired that way and can be rewired. Then a heavenly angel appeared to him and strengthened him. So an angel comes and touches him. and like I picture this angel lifting him on his feet saying, you can do this, but notice this. It doesn't say, oh, and he felt better and he got up full of peace and assurance and, and the tears were gone and he was fine and he went and did his thing. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, and he was in anguish. Did the Father come and just wipe away the emotions? Did he just turn it off and say, let's not talk about that anymore. Let's, let's not worry about that. The Father met him in the emotions and through meeting with the Father, Jesus was able to move through not without the fear, but in spite of the fear. See, I think one of the things that secure people do is they take moments of fear and panic and anxiety, and instead of being paralyzed by it, they look for the redemptive quality within it. That's something I'm trying to learn to do more and more. Some of you are in a situation like that right now. Can I say that again? Should I say that again? I think that when we're secure in the Father, the closer we are to security, the less we're paralyzed by fear, and the more we can actually find the redemptive purposes or redemptive qualities embedded in the fear. Does that make any sense? I don't know. We can talk about it next week, maybe. But Jesus is still in anguish and he prays even more earnestly. It says his sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. When he got up from praying, he went to the disciples. See, if Jesus was an island, he would have told the disciples, hey, you guys stay down there. I'm going to go off and meet with the Father and do my own thing. But he wanted the support of his friends. If he was a wave, he would have taken the disciples and said, fix this for me, help me. And he would have left the Father out of the picture. The way Jesus responded, by the way, the Mount of Olives, you know what that's all about? Garden of Gethsemane, you know what Gethsemane means? It means oil press. It means oil press. It was the place where olives were taken and they were crushed and they were pressed out. It's the place of pressure, the place of squeezing. When Jesus was squeezed, he brought community with him to go meet with the Father. How many of us either run to community and expect community to fix everything? Or just run to the Father and say, sorry, community. Me and the Father got it. But when Jesus was being pressed in the garden of oil pressing, when the pressure was on, he brings community with him to catch the glance of the Father. So he goes back to the disciples. He found them asleep, overcome by grief. He said to them, why are you sleeping Get up and pray so that you won't give in to temptation. By the way, this was the Passover night. The Passover night, they would have been used to staying up late, late, late into the morning, reminding themselves of the story of God's redemption. So the disciples in the Bible, you know that sleeping less often is related to laziness. It's most often related to overwhelm. When you find people sleeping in Scripture, it's usually a way of symbolizing or talking about their feeling of anxiety, pressure, stress, and overwhelm. Do you think the disciples were feeling some of that on behalf of Jesus? Do you think they felt the squeezing, the pressing? I think so. Is anybody else, how do I want to say this, impressed and encouraged and inspired and challenged by Jesus' ability to catch the eyes of the Father and be filled with Assurance and security, even when everything around him was falling apart at the seams. Can I tell you a secret? This is really, really important. None of you are an island. Those of you that raised your hand, I know the way I worded it was how many of you have island tendencies, right? None of you in this room are an island. None of you in this room are a wave. Every single one of us in this room are anchors, anchored to Jesus. And we're learning to rewire our brains to be less islandy and less wavy. Because the truth of the gospel, the core of the gospel, is that no matter what our brains are wired to do, like Paul tells us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will test and approve what God's good and pleasing and perfect will is. You know what God's will is? That your mind would catch up with the reality of your heart and your identity. That Jesus did not come so that you could have a generic relationship with the Father. The secret is we are anchors because Jesus came so that he could share with us his profound relationship with the Father. That's why the term in Christ, you can basically flip open any page of the New Testament, point a finger, and you can find an in Christ somewhere around there. Because Jesus says this peace, this joy, this assurance, this embrace that I know in the Father, I will stop at nothing for my children to know what I know in the Father. Some of us feel like recovering anchors, or recovering islands, some of us feel like recovering waves. The reality is that Jesus has anchored our identity to Him. And we are anchors trying to wrap our minds around that reality. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. There is new creature there. Romans 5.5 This hope doesn't put us to shame. Some of us are all too familiar with shame, aren't we? This hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 8. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as God's children. With this Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The same Spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. If we suffer with Him so that we can also be glorified with Him. I was hesitant to do this because I stole one of Brennan Manning's stories last Sunday, but this is just too perfect, I think. And I have some homework for you for this week. I love giving homework, because in another life, I'm going to be a professor. I don't know what that means, in another life. but um, Someday, I'm going to be a professor. But I want to give you some homework, and I want to tell you this story to frame the homework for you. Brennan Manning was leading a retreat And it was a Catholic retreat. And late one night, he hears a knock at his door. And this nun is at the door. And he says, well, hello, sister. Come in. What can I do for you? What are you doing here this late at night? And she says, I need to tell you something that my heart won't let me let go of but it's painful. She said, when you talk about these things like the love of God, all this this stuff that you've been sharing about, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I cannot believe, I cannot flip the switch, to use our terms. I cannot believe that God loves me. And she began to tell Brennan why she became a nun. And it was because from the time that she was little, she was sexually abused over and over and over by her father and by an uncle. That was what she grew up in. That was her childhood. That was her story. What do you think that did to the wiring of her brain? So she said, I became a nun because that was a way to hide from men and to not have to feel. I could kind of mask my feelings of dirtiness, filth, unworthiness. I could hide it with religion. Which she's the only one that's ever done that. And Brandon looked at her and he said, I'd like you to do something. For the next six weeks, I'd like you to do something every day. He said, in the morning when you get up, I'd like you to find a comfortable chair. And this is your homework. He said, I'd like you to find a comfortable chair. And I'd like you to sit down. And as you're sitting there, take your hands and turn your palms upward. And close your eyes and and think about and say these words. Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. There's no switch that we can flip to just all of a sudden believe that we're embraced and included and accepted and held in the Father's lap. But there is a community that God invites us into, and there is a presence that God wants to meet us with that can literally rewire the connections in our brains so that we don't have to reach to the ends of the universe to try to feel some kind of acceptance of the Father. But it literally can become our set point because Jesus has sent his spirit into our heart, saying, Abba, I am no longer a slave to fear. I belong to you. It doesn't just have to be an idea. It doesn't have to just be a concept or something we hear about once a year when we do a sermon series on living love Jesus shows us and makes it possible for us that this would become our set point. That our default way of operating would be security in the Father. And so I want to encourage you, if you can, every day this next week, take three minutes. Sit there. Palms up. Eyes closed. Abba. Daddy. Daddy. I belong to you. Father, I ask that when the pressure is on, when we feel pressed, when we feel squeezed, when we feel anxious, when we don't feel loved, I ask that somehow through your Spirit you would empower us to be like Jesus and go to that safe place and come and try to lock eyes with you to get perspective. That in your eyes we would see that sense of delight, that we would see that sense of affirmation, that we would know that what we're feeling is okay, that our opinions are valued. And that you are inviting us to become whole because we have something to give the world. Jesus, some of us in this room don't even know the ways in which fear holds us back, stifles us, suffocates, squeezes out these rivers of living water. But I ask that through this next week, as we hone in on our belongingness to you, that there would be a profound sense that we are no longer slaves to fear, but with assurance we could say, I am a child of God.